The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. One of the things about, you know, getting to preach every once in a while is like, it's not my routine. And so I brought my iPad up and for some reason I can't find my sermon in there. So uh, we're just going to read the text real quick and then go home. No, I'm joking. Uh, Daniel's getting me my computer, and it should be on there. Um, But before that, uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel this morning. 2 Samuel, thank you. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And uh, we're going to be talking about being fatally distracted. Now, there's two types of people I feel like. There's two types of people in this world. There's the one type who is like laser focused all the time, get, gets a task and does that task without any distractions. I would say that that's Daniel Ward. When we're working on a project, he can't think about anything else. He can't even sleep half the time if there's something we're working on. Uh, we'll be working on something and he will, he'll text me or call me like at 10 o'clock at night and be like, hey, I was thinking about you know, what we were talking about earlier and stuff and I'm like, dude, like, I, I don't, I'm not even thinking about that right now, you know? There's so many distractions, and for me, I'm very easily distracted, very easily distracted. So in other words, yeah, I was going to take a picture, but I decided not to. Uh, I'm, I'm like addicted to golf, and right now, the British Open is going on. And so yesterday, I'm kind of putting the finishing touches on my sermon, and I've got my legs popped up in my recliner, and the open is on, and I'm working on my sermon. I was going to take a picture like, this is me distracted, because I'd be having a good thought going, and then it's like, oh, Jordan Spieth just made a birdie. And so then I'd have to watch 10 more minutes of the TV. But anyways, that's the kind of person I am, right? I looked up the definition of the word distraction, and it says, uh, something that distracts is an object that directs one's attention away from something else. In other words, your attention is on one thing, and this distraction takes it away from that thing and puts it on something else. And sometimes a distraction can be good, right? Let's say you're working real hard, and you need to take a vacation from work. And so you go on a week's vacation and, you know, um, to Hawaii or somewhere like that, and you're just like, uh, you're there for a week, and it is a distraction, but what the, a bad distraction would be is then when you come home, now you really can't work because all you're thinking about is getting back on vacation. That would be a bad distraction. And so uh, look at what First Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 8 reads. And I think Daniel has read this a couple times in the last few weeks. He says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. There's something that's very important to understand as we walk through this Christian life is that Satan is the enemy and he's wanting to devour you every moment of your walk. And if we don't remain focused and we get distracted, he absolutely will succeed. Okay, that is Satan's job is to distract you and tempt you from what God wants you to do. And the moment you allow him to do that, you will be uh, he he will succeed. And so 
Like I said this morning, we're going way back, Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And before we get into the passage this morning, I want to give you a little background information about what's going on right here in the narrative. So we're at about 1000 to 980 BC, basically 3,000 years ago. King David is on the throne, and he is king over both Judah and Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that Judah and Israel had split, and when David came in, he then was able to unite them again for a while. And David would go down as being the greatest king to ever rule over Israel. In fact, in preparation for the Messiah, the scripture reads in 2 Samuel 7, 16, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. So Jesus, who was and is the promised Messiah, he's going to reign as king of kings for all eternity and he is a descendant of King David. And so as God fulfills his promise through the lineage of David, that's how important he was, right? He was anointed as a boy, uh, as, as a boy to be king and would enjoy the successes of victory as scripture calls him a man after God's own heart. So let's look at some of the, uh, some of the things he did, right? We know David to be who, David and who, right? Goliath. If you don't know anything about David, you know that probably, that David, this is the same David who killed Goliath with a sling and a stone. So he defeated Goliath. He unified all of Israel. Uh, he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem because it wasn't in their possession. He defeated their arch enemy, the Philistine army. So David, he knew and understood uh, war in such a way that he could not be defeated, right? As long as he did what scripture says, as long as he did what God had called him to do, there was no defeating David. This, is, this was God's man, right? So with a good understanding of who King David was, and I know that was really fast, but this is, this is who we're talking about as we get to this passage this morning. Let's go ahead and read 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 17, so just bear with me, read along with me, or it'll be up on the screen. It says, in the spring when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. She was a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now, she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then, Uriah, uh, then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift of the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace when all his master servant, uh, with all his master's servants. He did not go to his house. 
When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't come home, David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why, uh, why didn't you go home? Uriah answered, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house, eat and drink and sleep with my wife, and surely as you live and your life, I will not do this. Stay here also today, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem another day, uh, a, a, a day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. And he went out in the evening to go lay on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him as he... Uh, so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men of David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. So here we have King David. And for all of First and Second Samuel, you read about King David, and he's moving right along, and he's the hero of the story. And you really like King David as you're reading about him. And then out of nowhere, bam, chapter 11 happens, and he does something that is just like so despicable in the eyes of God, it kind of makes you do a double take. Like, wait a second, isn't this king a man after God's own heart? And how in the world, how could he be led into doing some of these things that he did? So have you ever had a person you admire or look up to fall from grace and do something so irresponsible that you even didn't believe it when you first heard it, right? I've experienced that. Um, there have been several quote-unquote men of God who were in the public eye, were doing what seemed like a great work for the Lord, then do something unheard of and that was not expected of them to do. One that brings to my mind, because he was really my favorite uh, apologist, was Ravi Zacharias, right? And we've talked about that in here before, that he, uh, you know, he was doing some great things, and his material is still great, but then he tarnished his testimony with some of the things that was exposed about him after he died. And, and so you start to think, like, I don't understand. I don't understand how this can happen, right? And this is the feeling you get as you're reading through First and Second Samuel. David, you know, he defeats Saul, and, he, and he's, so, like, uh, he's so in tune with God that he doesn't kill Saul when he has the opportunities to do it, and he listens to God, and everything, everybody loves David, right? They come singing in songs. Uh, David, uh, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. He was a popular guy. He was meant to be king. And then we get to chapter 11, and, and, he, and he does this thing. And I want to take a, a minute uh, just to look at the severity of the sins that was committed by the king. I think sometimes we can become so desensitized as we read about characters in the Bible, right? Maybe we don't see them as actual people in history, and maybe we, uh, you know, use the term Bible story and, 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 and think like, okay, well, it's just a story in the Bible, not real. But this is actual history, an actual time, somebody who actually did some of these things. And either way, these are some egregious acts done by David. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, chapter 20. Uh, chapter 20, this is where God is giving Israel the law. 
okay? We all know they're the Ten Commandments. God comes and tells Israel, these are going to be the commandments that you're going to live by. These are going to stay with everyone forever. Even societies we know today have some kind of remnant of the Ten Commandments because this is the moral law that God has set in men's hearts not to do these things. Well, let's look at the last five, okay? It says, uh, verse 13, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, servants, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so King David, a man after God's own heart, knows the law of God. There's no way he can't know the law of God, right? He knows the law of God, and in the heat of passion and in a moment of mental and physical weakness, he breaks five of the 10 commandments given, half of them, okay? It's bad if you do one or two, but King David, as he's coming to this moment, breaks five of the Lord's commandments, right? These are five acts of very serious sins, adultery, murder, coveting your neighbor's wife, add to that sexual immorality and lust. It's this horrible, horrible thing that he does. And it's interesting because I feel like we view King David or Ravi Zacharias or whoever as people who do things that we ourselves could never do, right? We, we always do that, don't we? We see people do some of these egregious things and we say, there's no way I could ever, ever end up in that situation. There's no way I could ever end up like Ravi Zacharias. There's no way I could ever end up like King David committing all these egregious acts. But remember the verse we read just at the beginning, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. That's you and that's me this morning. As my grandmother used to say, el diablo nunca duerme which is Spanish for the devil never sleeps, right? The devil never sleeps. He's constantly, always, him and his demons, looking for a way to trip you up, to trip me up, and we too could end up just as David did. Every person alive can. So how does something like this happen? How do we go from the top of what God has created them to be to the very bottom, to the depths of sin and destruction. How, how does that happen? How do, how do we get there, right? How, how, do we, how, how, do, how does something like that even happen to where you see somebody here and you look up to them and they are doing what God has called them to do and it looks great and then before you know it, they're in the news for murdering somebody. How does that happen? So let's look and, uh, and we can see three ways of how somebody can be fatally distracted, right? So that way we can be prepared for that. Number one, sin is no accident. Sin is no accident. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to people and they say something like mistake or it was an accident or I didn't mean to do it. And that is not true. That's not what the Bible says about sin at all. Look, did you catch that first part of this account? 2 Samuel 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring when kings march out to war, 
David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. But David remained in Jerusalem. Where was David supposed to be? He was supposed to be at war with his people. You go back two chapters, one chapter, and David is at war with his people. He is out there doing what he was meant to do, right? Now, it's, I think it's fair to say that David would not have essentially always gone out with the war party. However, this was David's M.O., That's who he was. He was the warrior king. He was the king that fought side by side with his men, and that's what he was famous for. And this would be his focus as it is what he was called to do. It was his direct purpose and anointing that God had given him in his life to be the warrior king. It's the reason that God would not allow him to build the temple for the ark. You remember that? As you're reading, why? Because he had blood on his hands. Because God created David to be the warrior king, not to be a king who creates a temple for God. And so here's David, and uh, he, he stays home. And I think there's a deeper reason why David remains in Jerusalem, right? There's a deeper reason. He had begun a slow fate of losing focus of what God's purpose was for his life. Okay, you don't stumble onto an affair. You don't stumble onto some of these sins that he did. It is a slow fade to get there to eventually it is what you want and desire. And it's easy to do when you're the most successful person on the planet, is it not? You've arrived. Everything is great, right? He had taken rest in who he was and, and in his accomplishments rather than staying focused on who God had called him and anointed him to be. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. There's an opportunity for each and every one of us to think and believe that we are so strong in certain areas that we don't need to work on those areas anymore. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. You need to watch out because you can't take a break from it. That's not the way it works, lest you to fall. And this is something that, unfortunately, is all too common amongst God's people, right? We get super comfortable in uh, in the life that we're living, whether it's because we're successful or whether it's because we live in such a prosperous nation where there's no opposition really to Christianity, whatever it may be. We, we, we put it on cruise control and we guide through what we think is a Christian life, right? And we're not on mission for God and we're not doing the things that God has literally called us and anointed us to do. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. But you, you and I, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. You and I the same have been anointed by God's Holy Spirit to then fulfill the mission that he has placed before us. We say it all the time around here. Jesus gave us one objective, and that is to go and make disciples, to love God, love others, and make disciples. That is your only purpose for God in this life. Now, you're to love the Lord your God, right? And you're to love your neighbor as yourself, and through that love, that is completing the mission that he has placed Before you, you've been anointed to do those things. That's what God has called you to do. 
Did you know that the idea of retirement from hard work being on mission for God is not found anywhere in the Bible? Did you know that? That when you're 60, 70, 80 years old, or even younger, you think, I've been doing work for God for a long time, and now it's my time to take a back seat and let these young kids continue it on. That is nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. It's, it's not in the Bible anywhere. Actually, our retirement from the mission that God has called for us is heaven. That when we get to that eternal rest, then we can rest from the mission that God has placed before us. Look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, 8. The little kids learned that this week. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. He didn't say he coasted in. He finished the race. I have kept the faith, and there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not, not only to me, but to all of those who loved his appearing. Paul understood this. Paul understood that this mission we are on is an ongoing mission, and we do not rest from that mission until we get to heaven. And I think we, too, can become like King David and say, you know, I've been doing a lot for the Lord. I've been, I've been telling people about Jesus, and I've been, you know, coming to church, and I've been doing this thing. I'm going to take a break from that because, because everything's great, right? Maybe the church is growing, and maybe I've been seeing a lot of success, and God has been blessing me with, you know, the perfect job or whatever, you know? And, and, we, and then, we, then we coast onto living the good life, and that's exactly what Satan wants because he's the devil who's roaming and roaring and comes to tempt you with the sin that is already deep within your heart. That's where sin resides, in you and me. That's what Jesus said, right? Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and slander. Jesus is basically saying there is sin laying weight in your heart, so when the devil is good and ready to tempt you with what's out there, that's where the sin comes from. This is the war between flesh and spirit, that your flesh is wretched, that your flesh is totally depraved, and that the spirit of God wants to do a good work in you, and that's the war that happens. And everybody's heard it, right? You got two dogs, which one's going to win? The one you feed more. And when you stop feeding that dog and you stop reading your Bible and you stop praying and you stop being motivated and being on mission for God's work, then the only other natural thing to come out of your heart is sin. That's the only natural thing to come out of your heart if you're not filling it with what God has placed there for you to do. That's the war of the spirit and the flesh. And this is exactly what happened with David on that night. This is exactly what happened to, think about it. The pump was primed, okay? Like I said, you don't just stumble into these kind of sins. The pump was primed. David was not out with his men. David was coasting on his successes and who he was made to be. He was at the pinnacle, at the very pinnacle of who God had created him to be. And he was taking it easy. And then, we get, uh, and then we get what happens, right? And this is my second point. Uncontrolled sin has a snowball effect. You ever 
not here in Texas, but have you ever made a snowman? <laughs> and there's sometimes it snows here. And what you have to do is you have to get a very small piece of snowball and then roll it around in the snow. And, it, and as you roll, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And bigger. I mean, I, I've made huge snowballs like this big, you know, when we were living in Virginia because it snowed a lot. And, uh, <laughs> and all it takes is this little bitty first ball. And as that snowball effect comes place, it gets so heavy where you can't even push it anymore. It's just so heavy and it's so big, it's out of control. And that's exactly, that's exactly the way sin works. That, that when the little sin creeps up and it gets uncontrolled, it turns into a bigger one and bigger one and bigger. And before you know it, it's done. The deed is done and there's nothing you can do. Let's look at the slippery slope David went down. Let's just break this down real quick. Verse two, it says, one evening David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a beautiful woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. Right there, right then and there, David lusts after this woman. Sin number one, right? He's walking on the roof of the palace, and we're not going to get into this morning whether Bathsheba should have been bathing out in the open like that or not, or, you know, we don't know the historical context of any of that, or if she knew the king would be looking. People want to get into all that. That's not important. Not important. What is important is David, the man of God, is walking on the rooftop, sees a woman bathing and chooses not to turn away, right? Chooses not to turn away. Well, the sin isn't realizing that there's a beautiful person that God created in front of you, okay? Yes, it is, honey. That's the sin right there. No, <laughs> God, listen, listen, there, there are beautiful people in this world. I married one, and, uh, and uh, th- that's okay. But when you begin to lust and you don't look away, from that beautiful person, and now it becomes something that is stuck in your head that you have to have, that's when the sin that is within you creeps out, and that's exactly what happened to David. He saw her, and he kept looking, and he lusted after her. Sin number one, lust. Sin number two, he coveted what was not his. Look at verse three. It says, so David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It's interesting that David is lusting after this woman, and it doesn't stop there. Lust then turns into action as he says, let's inquire about this woman. I want to talk to her. And David himself says, I I think I know who that is. That's the daughter of Eliam. That's that's Uriah's wife. That should have been a huge red flag right there. I'm not saying that it would have been okay if she wasn't married, right? Because he's the king and he has another wife. However, she is already, she belongs to somebody else. She is somebody else's wife. That's a major red flag. And he knew it. He sees her, he says, we need to inquire about this girl, and then it comes to his recollection, yeah, yeah, I know her, she's Uriah's wife. And who knows how many times Uriah and his wife had been in the palace and had been with the king. And now he's fixated on something that he knows he shouldn't have and inquires about her anyways. He covets his neighbor's wife. So he goes from lust which we all agree is, is a sin. You shouldn't be doing that. 
Jesus would later come and say, if you lust after a woman with your eyes, you've already committed adultery in your heart. But then he takes the extra step of saying, I need to find out more about her now. Yes, that's Uriah's wife. Go ahead and send, send for her, right? Verse four. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. How did this snowball? From him seeing her right there bathing to him lusting, coveting, and now he has committed the sin of physical adultery with this woman. And if that's not bad enough, right? If that's not bad enough, she becomes pregnant. And when she tells David several weeks later, I'm pregnant, he doesn't think to then repent of his sin and say, maybe I should stop here. Maybe the snowball has gotten too big because that's a pretty big snowball right there, right? She's pregnant and her wife or her husband is at war. He's not home. Everybody's going to know what she has done, not necessarily what David has done. And so to protect both of them, he comes up with this scheme of calling Uriah in so that when Uriah is home, what else is he going to do? Of course, he's going to go to his house, he's going to lay in his own bed, and he hasn't seen his wife in a while, and we can connect the dots. But he doesn't do that. It backfires on him, right? Listen, this is the worst part of this story is that David is trying to manipulate Uriah, his loyal servant uh, warrior. And as he's doing that, this loyal servant warrior will not offend the king by going home and sleeps at his doorstep two or three nights in a row. And David just can't fix the situation. So where does the snowball go after that? Well, he says there's only one other option. I kill Uriah and take Bathsheba as my own wife. Makes David look real good and nobody will ever know. Verse 14 and 15, he says, the next morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. How horrible of a human being do you have to be to send that guy's murder letter in his own hands. And he says, in the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front line of the fiercest fight and uh, then withdraw from him as he is struck down and dies. So here we go from walking on the top of the roof, seeing this woman all the way down to that. It's basically, this is what I'm trying to make the point of. David takes a break and is resting from what he's been called to do. And by the end of this whole situation, he's lusted, he has uh, committed adultery, he's coveted, and he's murdered somebody. Talk about a snowball. Sin, sin does that in our own lives. When sin remains unchecked, when it becomes easier and easier to do, we will absolutely do more and more of it. And it will be much more severe with each one that we commit. And you ask why? How do you know that, Julian? How do you know that if I just sin here and I don't check it, it's going to get worse? It's because then you get a taste for it. Now your taste is agreeing with your flesh of what you want. 
Another thing that happens is that the first sin may sting a little bit, right? You're going to feel convicted. I shouldn't have looked. I shouldn't have inquired. I shouldn't have slept with, okay? But the more you do, the more you start turning the volume down on the conscience that God has given you and is convicting you of the sin that you're doing. And so it becomes easier and easier and easier. And before you know it, you are so deep in the, in the, in the thick of it that it went way worse from what it first began with to what it is now. And we will have no one to blame but ourselves for it when this happens. Did you know that? Because there is a moment at every turn where we can stop and repent before it gets too far. There's a moment you can stop and repent. There's a moment. As David sees her, he can repent for lusting and go to bed. He can cry out to God and say, forgive me for lusting. And as he's, and as he's coveted before he commits the act, he can stop right there and say, God, please forgive me for what I just, all the way up until the murder. He can own up to getting Bathsheba pregnant with Uriah and he chooses not to do it. And every time it gets further and further in, the sin gets worse and worse and worse. We have chances. Look at 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the same exact God David knew and was after his heart. David knew and understood that he at any moment could ask God for forgiveness and God would forgive him. James 4, 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and, and he will flee from you. When you don't put these parameters before you to check the sins that have gotten out of control, any one of us in here can allow it to go too far and end up on the news for murder. That's how real it gets. That's what we're reading here. It's like if Daniel tomorrow would be in the news for murder. And that's how serious God has taken this offense from David. That when we, just like David, have unchecked sin, it will then start to run our lives and it will get worse and worse and worse. And some of us have that. And nobody can see it on the outside, but we hold it on the inside. We'll get into more of that in a minute. Number three, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. For every sin committed, there is an equal consequence for that sin. Sin produces death, spiritual death, and even physical death. So we can't think, right, that we committed this sin, we got away with it, nothing's going to happen because it's just like cause and effect. The sin you commit has now a consequence to pay for it, and David knew his sin was wrong and was even unrepentant of it that is until God called out his sin. Now, it gets pretty graphic. We have kids in here. I'm not going to get into some of the graphic stuff. But basically what happens is they're done. You can go read it uh, in, uh, in chapter 12. But they're done. It's done, right? Uriah has been killed. He's been murdered. David has now taken Bathsheba as his wife. 
And all the public knows is how great David is because Uriah died and David was kind-hearted enough to take Bathsheba in. And now she's pregnant. And so David thinks he's in the clear. He thinks he's in the clear and he's gotten away with it until the prophet Nathan comes. And David's like, oh, hey, Nathan. Oh, hey, David. I have a word from the Lord for you. Okay. He says, let's say there was this rich man and there was this poor man. And this rich man had everything he could ever want, didn't need anything, but there was a poor man on his land who had this baby ewe, sheep. And he loved that sheep, Nathan said. He loved that sheep. He nurtured that sheep. He treated that sheep as his own daughter. He loved it so much. He says, but then this this rich man has a visitor come. And instead of grabbing one of his own flock, he goes and takes the baby ewe from the man, cooks him up, and gives it to the visitor. And David is furious because Nathan's telling him, like, this is a real story. David's furious. And he says, he says, that's, that, that's not right. You bring that person to me, and he's going to pay the penalty fourfold. Nobody should do that, right? He's furious. He's flipping tables over. And that's when Nathan slaps him in the face with, you are that man because of the sin you committed for, before God by taking Uriah's wife as his own and murdering him. And bam, it hits David right between the eyes. He knows now the sin that he did before God, which was punishable by death for David. But look what happens. He's not going to die, Samuel, uh, Nathan says. 2 Samuel 12, 14, 15, and 18. However, since this deed by you, uh, since this deed you have shown utter disrespect for the Lord, the child himself who is born to you shall certainly die. Then Nathan went to his house. Later the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. We jump down to 18. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. David's sin had consequences. It was far more reaching and affected far more people than just David himself. And there was no escaping the ramifications of the deed that he had done. Because sin has consequence. This is the way it works a hundred out of a hundred times. A hundred out of a hundred times, sin will have consequence. The sin we commit, the sin you commit, the sin I commit. It will lead to death. Let me repeat that. It produces death. Look at James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Let's read that again and then think of David's story of the snowball effect. He says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. David knew this is what he desired. He was enticed with it and tempted by it. And after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. He allowed that to then give birth to sin, 
And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. A hundred out of a hundred times, sin equals death. Sin equals death. And, and, and when we think about it, is this something that we really believe in? Like, do we genuinely know and understand that the sin that I commit, that the sin that you commit on a daily basis has equaled death? Sometimes I feel like if we were to take, take it a little more serious like that, then we would commit a whole lot less sin because we know the ramifications of what's happening. And we become desensitized, right, to the sin that we commit that we forget that sin is repulsive to God, that God hates sin, and that the sin we try and hide from everyone else, God knows about, and there are consequences for that sin. Listen, we go on living this life, and sometimes we lie to ourselves because there are things that we do habitually that nobody knows about, that nobody knows about except for you. And we think we're getting away with it, because, you know, nobody's died and we haven't lost our job and lightning hasn't struck us down. And when we become desensitized that way, sin gets easier and easier and easier and easier to commit. And before you know it, the snowball effect has happened. And your life is pretty much in shambles. Maybe your personal life, maybe your relationship, maybe all these things are just nothing's going right and you can't figure out why because you're in church every Sunday. But unchecked sin has consequence. The sin that we don't come for repentance to God has consequence and when we leave it, it gets out of control. And sure, we've been forgiven. Yes, we've been forgiven. And we will not have to pay the ultimate price for that sin, but we can make our lives on earth heck by not coming and repenting to God for what we have done, and we all know what it is. We all know whichever secret we keep deep down with us. So, how, so why should this matter to us today, right? Why should we be concerned about some guy 3,000 years ago who did this horrible thing? Because it could be you and it could be me. Because it could be you and it could be me. I can't tell you how many pastors we know about, personally know, who are no longer in ministry and their life is in shambles because they did something exactly like this. It's because we think that those sins that we keep in secret, nobody will ever know. But sometimes, in the case of David and in the case of other people, God will then reveal those secrets publicly. Go, go in and read. Like I said, it's too much for the kids here, but go in and read the rest of chapter 11 and chapter 12. It's graphic. What God tells David is graphic. It was a whole other sermon for a whole other time, but you know, sometimes we, because we know God is love, we forget that the same God of the Old Testament is the God we serve today. You know, go read what he said to Job for crying out loud. And Job did nothing wrong. Read what he said to David. And this is the way God feels about the sin you and I commit. And each and every person in this room has sin that is unchecked this morning. Each and every one of us. And if we don't repent from that sin and allow the Holy Spirit to get control of it, we might see someone we know 
fall into something horrific just like this. I don't want that for us, church. Not for me, not for you. I don't want that for us. But it can easily happen. So what are we going to do about it this morning? That's the question. Remember what we talked about with David. At each step of the way, he had an opportunity to fall to his knees and ask for forgiveness. Please listen to me this morning. That you have the opportunity this morning to fall to your knees and ask God for forgiveness. And don't let pride or guilt or shame Don't let any of that get in the way of you knowing that you need to repent and ask God for forgiveness and allow him to start molding you back into who you are meant to be. Why do you think we don't do some of the things we've been called to do, right? We've had this discussion in our uh, equip class and people will say, I don't want people to see my life and then say, well, what about you? You know, what about the sins you commit? Why are those any different? But you know what? If you're repentant of those sins and you allow the Holy Spirit to then purify your heart, then that's okay. But when you don't check that sin and when you allow it to snowball, destruction will happen. Destruction will happen and things will fall apart. And I'm not saying whatever situation you're going through this morning is that, but it very well could be. It very well could be. And you have the opportunity this morning to fall to your knees and ask for forgiveness. Let's go ahead and stand, every head bowed, every eye closed. And listen, I know we do this every Sunday. We open the altars and the band plays a song and we kind of go through this whole deal of, you know, this is what we do. But I think we have a unique opportunity this morning to understand that God is willing and ready and has his arms open for you to ask for forgiveness this morning. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You don't have to carry that sin any longer. You can ask God for forgiveness for that this morning. And listen, maybe you're in here this morning and you're saying, I don't know anything about serving Jesus. I don't know anything about, you know, I'm a sinner. I'm going to die a death. If that's you, come talk to us. There's going to be people down here up front, and we would love to talk to you about that because you know what? You don't have to die that death. Somebody already did it for you. These altars are open. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look back into history and to realize and understand the things that we are not supposed to do. And I pray this morning for each and every person in here, God. I pray that we would fall to our knees and that we would repent of those sins that we hold deep down inside of us. Because we'd be lying if we said we had none. I pray this morning, God, that you would move upon our hearts, Father. That you would forgive us for the things that we've done and that we would then get back on track, get back on mission to doing the things that you yourself have called us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.